All right, a couple of announcements tonight. Uh, <clears throat> this weekend we have two events on Friday night, which will be tomorrow night. Starting at 7.30, we have the teen Christmas party. And I've been asked to make sure the kids all know that they're supposed to bring a white elephant gift. No gray elephant gifts or brown elephant gifts, but a white elephant gift, okay? Right. And then Saturday morning on uh, at 11 o'clock, we'll have the annual ladies' prayer meeting and Christmas brunch in the fellowship hall. Brunch will be provided, and there's an RSVP sign-up sheet out in the kitchen. And then... Um, I think that's it, right? Deacon's meeting at what time? Eight, nine. Okay, good. A.M.? Darn. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that we are to be in fellowship with God, which means that if we should confess any known sins to him and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Scripture teaches when we're out of fellowship, we're walking, living according to the power of the sin nature, and we have to recover through confession of sin to be walking by the Spirit and to advance in our spiritual life. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all that you've given us. We're thankful that you watch over us and you protect us and guide us, direct us. And Father, we're thankful for all that you've provided for us in our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and in your word. And that it is, as the Lord prayed, it is through your word that we are sanctified. It is through your word that we grow spiritually. It is only through your word and the Holy Spirit that we can come to understand what you have revealed, and that we can then uh, grow on that basis as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study this evening, we pray that you'd just help us to uh, understand your word, see how all of your word interconnects and intersects with every other part of your word, and how all of it fits within your master plan, and how this has, such has produced such tremendous benefits for us in our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we're going to continue our study in Romans. The first 11 chapters of Romans focus on the doctrine of justification, that in the major problem that every human being faces is the lack of righteousness. And in order to get into heaven... We have to have righteousness. Now, we're also spiritually dead. We're also under the condemnation of Adam's original sin, and there is a sin penalty that has to be paid. And as we've studied, and as we're studying more fully on Sunday morning, that objective sin penalty was paid for for everybody, for every human being at the cross, but that doesn't change the status of each individual believer, each individual, each indiv not not each individual believer, but each individual. Every person is born spiritually dead, and they are born without righteousness. And the only way to move from spiritual death to spiritual life, the only way to move from unrighteousness to possessing perfect righteousness is to trust in Jesus Christ, to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament the eternal God, who second person of the Trinity, the eternal God who entered into human history, uh, took on full humanity and then went to the cross to die for our sins. So we've gone through 
Romans, we've seen that in the breakdown so far in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, there was the introduction. Then in 118 uh, through 320, we see the development of the need for righteousness for the immoral person who rejects God, the moral person who thinks somehow his works can curry favor, enough favor with God, and the Jew who relies on the Mosaic law, but all come under condemnation because sin... Uh, is the problem. And because we're all related to Adam and Adam's original sin, everyone is born under condemnation. And so God must do all of the work in order to save us. And that is, comes under the doctrine of justification. And so Paul explains the fact of justification, the meaning of it in 321 to 31. We saw the illustration through Abraham and David in chapter 4. And now in chapter 5, he is going to develop the benefits of justification. And at the instant that we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, God the Father imputes to us or accounts to our credits to our account His perfect righteousness. And then when He sees that perfect righteousness, He declares us to be just. It doesn't change us, but now we possess, we own that righteousness. It's been given to us and it's on the basis of Christ's righteousness that we are saved. It's not by works. It's through the gift of righteousness. Now, when we come to chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this verse sets up the focal point of the next uh, 10 verses. If I, I want to read ahead in verse 2, which reads, Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we have peace in verse 1. We have hope in verse 2. We have a progression that develops in verses 3 through 5 that culminates in hope. And so the, there is a focus, on, there's a connection here between uh, our, the fact that we have been justified, therefore we have peace, and that peace develops hope, a confident expectation in the future. Now, there are a lot of things about this first verse that we need to talk about so we won't get out of it this evening. And uh, kind of interesting because it connects with Christmas, since Christmas is 10 days away, we get a little additional insight into Christmas today. Therefore, now this is an important opening here because Paul is drawing a, the consequences out, developing the consequences of our justification. Because we have been justified, he's going to say, Therefore, draws that conclusion from all that he has said before. He says, therefore, and then the next word, actually we need to skip to the main verb and the main phrase, we have peace. That is the main thought. Other things that are said are secondary and circumstantial to this main thought that we have peace with God. And the verb is a present active indicative. And you always have to learn a little bit about grammar because in the, in the way this is translated in English, in most English translations, you don't catch, we just don't catch the, the real emphasis that's there in the Greek because when the, the Greek participles are translated into English, they have a range of meanings. And you have to identify what those meanings are. And if you were an original Greek speaker, you would, you would understand it just as you have idioms in English and phrases in English. And when you hear people say certain things, you know exactly what they mean. But someone for whom English isn't their uh, native language is scratching their head trying to figure out what that exactly means. So it's important to draw these things out and come to understand uh, what, what they mean. So when you have a, a, a sentence that has a main verb and a participle, the action or the time of the participle is related to the time of the verb. So if you have a present tense verb 
and then you have an aorist tense participle, which is what we have here. And, and we don't have an aorist tense in the English, but in Greek, that's your general past tense. The action of the aorist tense comes before the action of the main verb. So in order to have peace, what Paul is saying here is something happens logically prior to having peace, and that is justification. And he uses the same word that he's been using all through the discussion since chapter 3 on for uh, justification, the verb dikaio, which means to declare righteous. It doesn't mean to make righteous because we're, we're not, we aren't made perfectly righteous at salvation. We're only declared to be righteous because we have been given the righteousness of Christ so that you still have the same rotten, nasty sin nature you always had, and that's not going to go away even if your phone rings. <laughs> so we, justification is simply that declaration, a judicial statement made by the Supreme Court of Heaven that a person has the righteousness of Christ and they are declared righteous. So dikaiao means to declare righteous or to declare just before God's Supreme Court. If you look at the basic uh, morphology or the grammatical form of the word, it's an aorist passive participle. The aorist tense means it's past action. So in relation to the main verb, the action of justification comes before peace. It's passive because we as human beings don't do anything to make the action take place. We receive the action of, of that of that word. So we are, we receive the action of justification. We're declared to be just. And, um, and it's a plural because he is talking about we who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it should be translated, therefore, because we have been declared righteous by means of faith or through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is through faith and faith alone that we are declared righteous. Again and again and again, Paul makes this statement that we are declared righteous and justification is by uh, faith alone. He says in Galatians 2, uh, 2.16 that uh, because we know that we have been justified by faith and not by works, for by the works of the law no man, no flesh shall be justified. And so we know that there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves savable or justifiable. All of our works of righteousness, Isaiah said, are as filthy rags. Now the result, this first benefit that Paul talks about here of our justification is that we have peace with God. Now, this is a very significant statement to pay some attention to. Of all the doctrines that people get confused about, all the teachings that you have in Scripture that people twist and turn and, and uh, reinterpret within the, their own experience rather than paying attention to the context of Scripture, and especially at Christmas time when you have all of the different Christmas specials and we hear uh, about peace in the world and you hear the quotation often uh, out of context of the angelic announcement to the shepherds, peace on earth to uh, men of goodwill, that it's, it's misunderstood and it's interpreted in terms of, of world peace, absence of war, and it's not understood within the context of, of Scripture. And it's an extremely important phrase. It's not just something Paul plucks out of the air here, but it has a history that goes all the way back into the Old Testament. And so to understand New Testament concepts, we don't need to go to Greek for the background because Greek isn't the background language for the Old Testament. Hebrew is. And we go back to the Old Testament and the... Uh, the core word for peace is the word shalem. 
You know of it because you hear the word shalom, which is used in Hebrew as a greeting. It means peace. They use it to say hello. In modern Hebrew, shalom can mean hello, goodbye. Um, It can be just a greeting like blessing. It has a wide, wide uh, range of meanings. In fact, the word shalom, that form of the word, is used over 250 times in the Old Testament. Now, unfortunately, in modern American culture, when we talk about peace, the first thing that comes to a lot of people's minds is has to do with the context of war, not being at war, not being in a conflict. And that certainly is uh, one of the nuances of the, of the word uh, shalom and as well as the word arene, which is the Greek word used in the New Testament. However, in the Septuagint, the LXX there is the Roman numeral for 70, and the legend is that 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, from Hebrew into, uh, into Greek uh, somewhere around 250 B.C. And in their translation of the, uh, Greek, of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, they used generally three, one of three different Greek words to translate shalom. The word they used uh, the most was probably peace, but they also used the word salvation or the verb sozo for salvation. And then they also used a word we're uh, familiar with in many contexts, and that is the word teleao, which means to become complete or mature. And that fits the core idea of shalom, which means to be uh, complete or whole. It has the idea of being healthy or sound or fulfilled. And so in many contexts, the idea of teleao would certainly fit uh, a translation of, of shalom. So shalom has, a wide, again, a wide range of meanings, just as uh, the word peace can have in, in English. The first meaning in the Old Testament that is uh, probably the, the most common is used over 50 times to refer to the absence of war conflict or or, or strife, but it's more than just not having conflict. It's more than just not being in a state of war. It has a positive quality to it that it is a a state of wholeness, a state, a, a, a healthy relationship. It's not just that you're not arguing with somebody or not fighting with somebody or that you don't have uh, mental attitude sins towards that person or that you're not angry with them. It's that there is something positive in that relationship. There is a wholeness to it. So it's emphasizing something very positive beyond simply having an absence of, of conflict. So it is certainly used in the, in the context of not having, having war. Of course, there were many wars in the Old Testament between the Jews between the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, between uh, the southern kingdom and the Syrians and many other, many other people. So that's one meaning. Second meaning is that in some cases it refers to a state of wholeness with God that is the result of righteousness. So this idea that we're seeing here in, in Romans 5, that peace is the result of justification, isn't something that Paul dreamed up. And this is often a an accusation that you hear from people who don't want the don't want to interpret the Bible literally, don't want to understand its message literally, because they've foundationally or presuppositionally rejected the message of the Scriptures, so they have to reinterpret it. I got my blood pressure going this morning, my heart rate up this morning, not by exercising or working out, but I every now and then I have to go hear what uh, people who think of the world a little differently than I do. And so I flip over to MSNBC in the morning to see what <clears throat> what, what they're saying. And so as I flipped over for a few minutes and was watching uh, Morning Joe this morning, and Dan, uh, Dan um, Senior was on, and I, he's fairly conservative. If you don't know who he is, he's Jewish. He's written a wonderful book called uh, The Startup Nation, which is all about the uh, rise of, the, uh, of technology 
and and Israel and the whole the, the whole economy in Israel, and it's just remarkable. It's I, I highly recommend recommend that book. And and he's on there every now and then, and so when he is, I tend to flip over there to see uh, what he has to say. But they were interviewing someone, and I just caught the beginning, so I wasn't sure who this was. But he talked about the fact that he had had an Episcopalian background. He was he was a British, but he was talking about a a new book that was out on that he'd written a forward to on uh, anti-Semitism, and I just caught a statement that he made uh, about, and he was talking about all the horrible things he heard about how uh, he learned about Christian anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages. Of course, whenever I, I hear somebody say that they didn't learn that till they were much older, I always am a little bit appalled at the, their lack of exposure to uh, good education. But that's typical today, even from those who are, you know, he looked like he was about 70-something. And um, But he made this comment about how there are anti-Semitic comments in the Gospels. And then somebody else who I've seen on on that show in the morning, and I don't know who he is, says, well, that is from one of the most anti-Semitic of the Gospels. And, of course, I immediately am just... You, the only reason anybody thinks the Gospels are anti-Semitic is they don't understand the Bible because they come to it from a a, a position where they don't believe the... They don't want to give credit to the Bible's the Bible saying, or the Bible says what it is, and they don't want to believe the Bible's self-testimony of what it is. So they make it a human book, and they interpret its origin and development from a liberal framework. And when you start from a wrong starting point, you're going to end at a wrong ending point, which is it was a classic example of that. And then I thought, well, this I read a little bit about this book on Amazon downloaded it to my Kindle and started reading it this morning. I read his introduction and caught five factual errors in his introduction, which really surprised me because this is, you know, you usually don't find that or that much in uh, print literature. But he didn't write the book, and it, it does look like it's a, going to be a very good book on the history of anti-Semitism from 586 B.C. to the present. A lot of people don't realize that anti-Semitism did not start with Christianity or with the crucifixion of Christ, but it has its origin with the destruction of the first temple and the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah at the time of, of Nebuchadnezzar. So anyhow, it, it, when people just don't understand and don't take the time to read the Bible and let the Bible speak for itself and interpret things within its own context, then they always come away with the wrong, with the wrong message. And this shows us that the message of Paul, which is Paul is often accused of, of just inventing the theology of Christianity, that Paul is just reiterating what is already in the Old Testament. He doesn't come up with anything new in, except for the application to Jesus as the Messiah. Because what Paul does again and again and again is to show what the Old Testament teaches that the Messiah will do, and then he points out that Jesus is that Messiah. That's the only thing new in what Paul is saying. He's not inventing new theology from the from the Old Testament. And so, as we've seen in Romans 4, when Paul goes back to show that the whole concept of imputation of righteousness is the basis of justification by faith, he went to Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, and he went to David. Now in this passage, he, he is going to talk about peace and relate it to righteousness. And this uh, comes right out of Isaiah, Isaiah thirty-two seventeen. The work of righteousness will be peace. Or the, and, and it's the work of righteousness in the sense of the effect or the consequence of righteousness will be peace. But it's talking first and foremost about peace with God and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. So the connection of justification and righteousness to peace is an Old Testament concept, and we'll see a little bit more about that as we continue to go through uh, our study. So I think I just duplicated this. Oh, third point. Third point. Let me get this up here. 
onto the slide again. Okay, third meaning is that it refers to the peace offering in Leviticus chapter 3. And the peace offering is designed to teach exactly what Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 5, which is the peace, the new state of peace that exists between God and sinful man because of the sacrifice that has paid the penalty of sin, which breaks down that barrier between man and God so that there can now be a state of peace which replaces a state of, of enmity. Now, there's a fourth meaning that I haven't found in, uh, in the Old Testament for shalom, but it is a meaning that we have in the New Testament for peace, and that is peace in, as a mental attitude state that is in contrast to anxiety or worry. And that is found, in, for example, in Philippians chapter 4, 5, and 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So the contrast there is between a state of anxiety or worry and a state of peace, calm, and stability because you have cast your care upon the Lord and are allowing him to take care of the problem rather than taking care of it yourself. That doesn't mean you don't think about it and you don't. There's a sense of worry there where we just sort of we, we run issues and situations over and over in our mind to try to work through how we're going to handle it. That's not worry in the sense that the Scripture is using this as a state of anxiety as if we're trying to control that which we cannot control. So, but that's getting beyond the, the, the focus of where I'm going uh, this evening in this study. So we have shalom in the Old Testament as a reference to peace in terms of the absence of conflict, usually military conflict, but it can also relate to other kinds of conflict. It is a peace that is in relationship to uh, God and righteousness, and then third, the, the peace offering. Now, one of the most significant passages where we find the use of the word shalom and peace is in a messianic prophecy in Isaiah. So turn with me now. We're going to spend most of the rest of the evening back in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at a, a passage that's frequently quoted at Christmas and one that is a, an extremely important uh, messianic prophecy. And I've done something a little interesting for you this evening is I've put up some different translations for you. Now, the translation on the left is close to what you're used to hearing. The column on the left is from the New King James Version, and it reads, and I'm just going to read verse 6 to begin with, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, the translation on the right is the JPS 1917 translation of the Tanakh. JPS is the Jewish Publication Society. Tanakh is what uh, Jews, uh, an acronym Jews use to refer to the Old Testament made up of the, uh, the initial consonants in Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And I want you to notice how the 1917 edition uh, translates this. Christians do the same thing. We get into a theological mind, so let's not translate it. Let's transliterate it. And we'll just create even further problems. That's the most famous example of that is the transliterating baptism. Instead of the King James translators, instead of translating it immersion, they, tran they just transliterated the word baptizo to baptism to just further cloud the issue. So the 1917 Tanakh translates it, For a child is born unto us, a son is given unto us, and the government is upon his shoulder. Now, you see, there's not a much difference between how the, the, the Jewish translation runs at this point and the, and the uh, Christian translation, the New King James. 
But then it says, and his name will be called Pele Yoez El Gibor Aviad Sarshalom. See, what does that mean? Now you avoid the whole issue of the, of the messianic titles here and you just obfuscate the whole issue there. So if you're Jewish and you're reading through Isaiah and you read this, you don't understand what it is talking about and that these are titles related to the Messiah, that he is born and that he is also called God. Now, then we go from that to, in this slide... I have the um, uh, JPS, uh, uh, the uh, the Tanakh 1985 edition. I didn't label it. It's on the left side. I have the JPS 1917 edition on the right side. See, they have different translations just like we do. And in Isaiah 9, 5, in the Hebrew Bible, the the verses often are one verse off of the way we number them. So in, in, the, um, in the 1985 Tanakh, look at what they did. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given us, and the authority is settled on his shoulders as opposed to government. It's the authority is settled on his shoulders. He has been named the mighty God is planning grace, the eternal father, a peaceable ruler. Huh? That's really different. Not only that, but if you go back in history and look at how Jewish rabbis have translated this, it's even more confusing. They can't agree, and one of the reasons they don't agree is because the the messianic implications are so obvious and the fulfillment in terms of how Christians interpret this is so obvious that, as I've pointed out in studies like this before, they have worked quite uh, diligently to try to somehow rework the text so that it doesn't say what the Christians say that it says. And this is specifically uh, true in terms of the um, uh, Masoretic text. As we look at this verse, I'm going to go back to the New King James translation now in the left column. It's clearly stated that you have these these um, five titles, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, the one that, of course, we're focusing on here is that last one. He is the Prince of Peace. This is related to his messianic role. Now, that first word, wonderful, as you see in the transliteration on the right side from the JPS version, is Pele. This is a word that is only applied to God, though. It's never applied to man, and it has to do with beauty and wonder and amazement. He's called Wonderful, uh, Counselor, uh, Mighty God, El Gibor, Mighty God. So the child who is born is called Mighty God, but that's when you just transliterate that, you, you, you lose that unless somebody reads it and they know Hebrew. But the way this is handled in, in the... Um, modern um, uh, uh, Tanakh is to translate this as the mighty God is planning, that's counselor, so they change it to planning, grace. Instead of wonderful, they change that to grace. So they've made this two statements about God and inserted a verb. What's interesting about that is the Masoretic text, which is the uh, Hebrew text that, that we use, was developed by a group of scribes that were called the Masoretes, and it doesn't reach its final form until around the 8th or 9th century A.D. And now what has happened for the previous 800 or 900 years before the Masoretic text reaches its sort of final form? And by final form, I don't mean in terms of the words. Uh, they're, they're, They're inserting vowels to preserve pronunciation, but they're also inserting accents and breathing marks in order to identify how clauses and phrases should be connected together. In other words, they're inserting punctuation, and punctuation, as I pointed out before, can change the interpretation and meaning of a verse, which is what what the Masoretes did. And there are a number of examples, especially with with, uh, 
uh, with messianic prophecies where the Masoretes uh, manipulated the text via punctuation so that it doesn't come across as being uh, uh, messianic as it's used or quoted in the New Testament. This is an example of this. The Masoretic text inserts accents which divides the titles in a way that's even different from the um, uh, 1985 Tanakh. According to the accents the Masoretes put in, it should be translated, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, so you have two titles for God at the beginning, calls his name, and so they they insert or change this, this uh, uh, where they put the verb here, and the his name is taken to refer back to the child. So you have two people here. You have God calling the child a name. And so according to the Masoretic text, it should be translated, the wonderful counselor, the mighty name calls his, that is the child that is born, calls his name eternal father, prince of peace. But why would he, you know, they don't answer that question. So you see that, that here's the 1985 Tanakh doesn't read anything like the, the punctuation the Masoretic text gave it, and that doesn't read anything like, of course, what the, what the uh, t- uh, JPS 1917 version says. So you just sort of scratch your head if you were Jewish, say, what in the world does this mean? At least when you, when you have various English translations uh, done by Christians of different verses, you can, they, they sound somewhat similar. Here, they're just, it's like they're all over the board because they're trying to avoid communicating a messianic prediction here. And a lot of this goes back to a 10th century rabbi uh, who goes by the name of Rashi who did a tremendous amount of work to, to change mess, historic messianic interpretations and messianic prophecies so that they refer to historical fulfillment and not future fulfillment. If all these messianic pro- prophecies were fulfilled by historical figures uh, centuries before Jesus, then you don't have any messianic prophecy for Jesus to fulfill and you uh, destroy the whole Christian, uh, Christian argument and uh, Christian defense. Uh, Kyle, um, excuse me, Franz Delich, who was a uh, Jewish believer and scholar in the 19th century, uh, came up with a number of reasons dealing with the technicalities of the translation here and the uh, Masoretic accents to demonstrate that they they just didn't hold water. The accents were added much later. They weren't part of part of the original. I'm not going to go through those because of the uh, uh, technicality. But one of the arguments that he says is that if um, the first uh, two titles um, that if they were separate titles from the last two as it was handled in the Masoretes, then they would have each had a definite article, which they didn't have. So he points out a number of other things and makes a pretty uh, fairly, convincing, uh, fairly convincing case for that. Another thing that, that supports the Christian, the traditional translation of Isaiah 9-6 and the traditional understanding of it as a messianic passage is that the, 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 an early midrash, now a midrash was a Jewish rabbinical commentary on the Hebrew text. An early uh, midrash, uh, De- uh, Deuteronomy Rabbah 120, states in reference to Isaiah 9-6 that it refers to the Messiah, the future Messiah, and the statement is made in the Midrash uh, of God speaking, saying, I have yet to raise up the Messiah of whom it is written, for a child is born to us. Now, that Midrashic commentary was written about the 2nd or 3rd century A.D., and it shows that at the time of Christ and after, they clear, the Jewish community clearly understood Isaiah 9-6 to be a messianic prophecy, and they translated it 
uh, in a way similar to the way we translate it today, not in the distorted way that either the Masoretes or uh, the modern uh, Jewish Tanakh has translated it. So that gives us, again, confidence that the way we have historically understood Isaiah 9-6 and the way it has been quoted in the New Testament to refer to Jesus as the Messiah is, is accurate. Now, to truly understand what is going on here with Isaiah 9-6, we have to recognize that the claim that is made in this prophecy is that you have a child that is born, and then in parallelism, the child is then called a son, and that title of son is a title that would, uh, was understood to be messianic, and then that the titles that are applied to this born one, which indicates that he is human, are titles of deity. He's called El Gabor, the mighty God. He's called the everlasting father, which uh, is a, is a he, it's not calling him the father, it, it should be translated the father of eternity, indicating that he is truly eternal. It's not calling him eternal father, it's but the father of eternity, indicating that he has all of the attributes of deity, including eternality. And finally, that he is the prince of peace. Now, why is Jesus called the prince of peace? Well, to un- understand that and to answer that question, we actually have to go back uh, to a few other uh, things that have been t- uh, covered previously in Scripture. As a background, we have to go back just two chapters to Isaiah 7. The context of Isaiah 9-6 actually begins in Isaiah 7-1. And the background for understanding all of this is to understand the covenant that God made with David, that in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, and again in Psalm 89, which is a meditation on the covenant that is given in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, and then 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14, which was uh, written later, but also uh, rehearses the contents of the covenant, you have the promise of God that a son, a physical descendant of David would sit on an eternal throne. The only way you can have a human descendant sit on an eternal throne is if that human descendant somehow has the attributes of eternality, which is what you get with a divine human Messiah. So there are three aspects to the Davidic covenant, that there is the eternal house of David, that he would have an eternal dynasty, that he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne forever and ever, an eternal kingdom, and that his throne would be established forever, an eternal throne. So God promises him an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. And this is covered in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 uh, through 16. Now the verse I want, uh, want to point out or, or spend a little time on uh, is in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, where God promises, "...in your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you." Your throne shall be established forever. And this is the Hebrew phrase, ad, which is to or towards something, olam, which is forever. So your uh, throne will be established, uh, ad olam, until or to forever. Now, another passage that fits and ties into this Another messianic prophecy that comes later in Isaiah is one I mentioned last week as we came to the conclusion of Romans 4. In the last couple of verses of Romans 4, language is brought in that comes out of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, and Isaiah 53, verse 12. And so let me, I want to put six verses from Isaiah 53 up here. This is one of the most well-known Uh, Old Testament Messianic prophecies. Speaking of the future Messiah, Isaiah writes that he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, indicating that he is rejected. He is uh, by his peers, by his family, by those he came to save. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, a picture of rejection. 
He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And then the next couple of verses indicate the fact that this servant who would come had a role as a substitute. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The idea that the one who would come would take our griefs and sorrows upon himself. Yet, Isaiah says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, blamed him. God hates you and blamed uh, blamed him for his rejection, smitten by God and afflicted. But, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. Again, the idea of substitution. He was bruised for our iniquities. And then look at that, the chastisement for our peace, the punishment for our peace. There's that idea of peace again. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has what? Substitution again. Laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus did not utter a sound until the Father imputed to him on him the sins of the, of the world when he cried out, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressions, and he bore the sin of many. That's the idea quoted in Romans 4. And made intercession for the transgressors. All right, now let's go back to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7.14 is another well-known messianic prophecy. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Who's he talking to? And is the you there in the original a singular or a plural? That's a very important question to answer. You cannot tell from the English. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son... There's where we have the introduction of the term son in the context of Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. The, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. Em, at the beginning, is the Hebrew preposition with. Uh, Emmanu, that, that N-U is the ending for us, so it's with us, and then L is God. So Emmanuel means God with us. This is a, a strict claim that the virgin will give birth to a son, but the son is also fully divine as indicated by the name uh, God with us. Now to understand what is going on here, because there are those who have uh, uh, interpreted this uh, several different ways to avoid the messianic implication we have to look a little bit at the context. The context begins in Isaiah 7.1. There is conflict between the Jews of Judah, the southern kingdom, and the Jews or Israelites in the northern kingdom of Israel. The, northern ki- the year is about 735 B.C., which is only about 12 or 13 years before the northern kingdom of Israel will be wiped out by the Assyrians. And so now you have on the horizon this this dark cloud that is gathering as the Assyrian Empire is growing in strength, defeating other nations, gobbling up other nations, and they are known for their cruelty and for their love of torture of their victims. And so they are looking to the Middle East to come down and to raid. And so... uh, so Rezin, who's the king of Syria, is right. He, he's next. He knows he's the next one to be attacked by the Assyrians. He entered into an alliance with Pekah, who is the king of, of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, Pekah, the son of Remaliah. And they have entered into an alliance together, and they've tried to get uh, Ahaz, the king of Judah, to join them to fight against the Assyrians, but Ahaz won't have anything to do with it. So now they are t- turning against Judah, and they are going to, they've entered into a military alliance to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, here's a map. 
that gives you an idea of this, this territory. Here's Aram, here's Damascus, this is the area of Syria. This area uh, here to the uh, east of the Sea of Galilee, this is the Golan Heights area today. This is over here, the area of Phoenicia is Lebanon. This is not very wide going across here, uh, less than about 30 miles. So you see how tenuous uh, even modern Israel is in their defense in that, in that northern, uh, northern area up here. And the purple area here is the northern kingdom of Israel. So when you, uh, it, it's much larger than uh, the modern area of, uh, of uh, Samaria, which is the northern part of the so-called West Bank. Never call it the West Bank. It's Judea and Samaria. Uh, the West Bank is just a fraudulent term like a Palestinian. Uh, that's one thing New Gingrich got right. First time I've heard anybody at national level of politics have the, have the intelligence and the facts to come out and state the truth that the Pal- Palestinians are an invented people. It's an invented name until Arafat started using it around 1967, the term Palestinian always referred to the, to the Jewish uh, inhabitants of the historic territory of, of, of Palestine. Uh, so it never referred to the Arabs until he co-opted it in the, uh, in, in the 60s. So once you get an alliance of, of Damascus and uh, the Arameans or Syrians with uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, they're going to attack Judah, and the idea here is to is to take Ahaz off the throne. Now, Ahaz is a descendant of David. What did God promise? He said, "David, you're going to have an heir on the throne forever." So it's an it's not just an assault against the Southern Kingdom because uh, Judah won't do what they want Judah to do. It's they want to wipe out the the house of David. So it is a messianic assault. It is a part of the angelic conflict and uh, an attempt to uh, destroy any hope of providing a Messiah through the Davidic line. So when we look at verse 2, we read, And it was told to the house of David. See how the text is bringing out this emphasis. The issue here is the house of David. It was told to the house of David, that is Ahaz, who's the king, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. Ephraim was one of the ten tribes in the north, and often the northern kingdom was just called Ephraim or Israel. Uh, so his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. In other words, they're scared to death. That's a very picturesque I- imagery. They're just shaking in their boots, we would say. Uh, so they're going to come down and invade uh, into Judah, but the Lord has other plans. So in verse 3, we're told, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Sheryashib, your son. Now, why in the world does, is Isaiah supposed to take his, his boy with him? And, and Sheryashib is fairly young at this time. And pay, pay attention to that. Go to the end of the aqueduct from the upper peel on the highway to the fuller's field and, and say to him, that is, say to Ahaz, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands. A stub of a firebrand is what's about to go out. If you've ever lit a torch when it, the, uh, the flame goes out and you're just left with a few sparks and you're left with the stub, it, it's life is almost over with. That's the point here. They're not going to last much longer. Uh, don't fear or be faint-hearted. And, and if you, in, in the Hebrew, he's talking, he's using singular pronouns and singular imperatives, which means he's talking to Ahaz. You, 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 singular. Uh, uh, the, the, the fierce anger of resident Syria, the son of Remaliah, it's all about to go out. Then the Lord says to Isaiah, um, let me just skip ahead to verse, verse 8 here. Oh, verse 5. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you. See, it's a, uh, the 2MS there, second masculine singular. It's real important to notice this. He's talking to Ahab about Ahab in the singular. And he quotes, the, uh, uh, summarizes the thinking of the northern kingdom and the Syrian alliance. Let us go up against Judah and trouble it and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and put a king over them. See, that's their idea. Let's take the Davidic king out, get rid of the house of David and put in our own little puppet king, the son of Tabeel. And the Lord says, that's not going to happen. Verse 7, nor shall it come to pass. 
for the head of Syria's Damascus, the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, will be broken so that it will not be a people. That's important to put those two clauses together because in 12 years they're defeated by the Assyrians, but then it's going to take time for all of the resettlement and repopulation to take place uh, when the northern kingdom, when the Israelites are, are completely redistributed and relocated and they're wiped out as, as a people. And then um, uh, verse 9 says, The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. That's uh, uh, Pekah. He says, If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Once again, it's the offer of faith. If you'll just turn back to God, that will solve the problem. But they don't do it. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahab, says, Ahaz, ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Depth and height, two opposites. We covered that as a figure of speech, that if night and day, uh, up and down, uh, any, anything, think of anything possible, high or low, whatever it is, covering the whole range of possibilities, ask whatever you want for a sign, and I'll give it to you. That's what God says. But Ahaz is arrogant. He says has a little uh, false humility here and says, No, Lord, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm not going to ask, nor will I test the Lord. Well, the Lord just asked him to do that, so he's disobeying the Lord. Then verse 13, then he said, and this is uh, Isaiah speaking, the, the command of God, Hear now, O house of David. Who's he talking to? Ahaz? Ahaz would be one person, a singular pronoun. But he's not talking to Ahaz anymore. He's talking to the line and lineage and house of David, which is what? Plural. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, it is a small thing for y'all, it's a plural, it's a small thing for y'all to weary men, but you will you weary my God also? Verse 14, Therefore the, he's wearying God by not obeying the command to ask for a sign. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give, not Ahaz, it's not a singular pronoun. It's the house of David. The Lord will give y'all a sign. The sign is to confirm that God is going to be true to his promise to David to have an eternal dynasty, that the northern kingdom and the Syrians are not going to wipe out the house of David. So he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give y'all a sign, the house of David. Behold, the virgin, and it uses a definite article there, which indicates that it's specifying a specific virgin, indicating that the, the Hebrew readers at that time understood that there's a connection of a virgin to the Messiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This goes back all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman. The term used for a virgin there was Alma, which is a term used of a young unmarried woman who has just broken through puberty and is now of marriageable and reproductive age but has not uh, married yet. Now, when we look at Isaiah 7.14 and then we go on to the next verse, uh, and I don't have a slide on this. Therefore, the Lord himself, uh, or 15, curds and honey he shall eat. Now, there are a number of commentaries will say, well, see, this is the food of royalty, milk and honey. Not so. If you read verses 18 through 25, God describes what it's going to be like when the Assyrians come through as a scourge on the southern kingdom. They will destroy the northern kingdom, but they, they, like a floodwaters, they won't drown the southern kingdom and kill it. They'll just get up to the neck. And as a result, it wipes out agriculture. And little is left. And in those, the description there, we, um, uh, we read, And it shall come to pass in that day, that is when the Assyrians come, that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest place, of, part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, as things grow wild, the bees will come, and what will bees produce? The bees will produce honey. And then later on, um, we read in verse 21, it shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. That's not much. He's lost everything else. He just has a cow and two sheep. So it shall be from the abundance of milk they give 
that he will eat curds. For curds and honey, everyone will eat who is left in the land. See, the eating of curds and honey is what the, the, the people are left because everything's been wiped out. It's like Europe after World War II. They've been devastated. The economy's wiped out. The only thing they can, they can scavenge is, 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 is milk and dairy products and, and honey. And so there is a, a, a warning or the sign that is given in verse 14 is of a virgin conceiving, and that sign is given in relation to the preservation of the house of David. It's not, it's not given to Ahaz because it wasn't to be fulfilled in that generation. And, uh, but verse 15 says, Curds and honey he shall eat. If this is talking about the Messiah, and it's indicating that the reason they eat curds and honey is because the nation is under political oppression. And that's the condition of Judea at the time of Jesus is it's under the control and domination of Rome. So verse 14, 15, all deal with the Messiah, and then there's a shift in verse 16. Uh, ver verse 16, for before the child shall know how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now, who's the child here? I bet it's capitalized in your Bible. It shouldn't be. Who's the child that's here? Shir Yashiv. That's why God told Isaiah, bring your little boy with you. And now there's a sign because the pronoun shifts from plural back to singular. Now Isaiah is talking to, to Ahaz. And he says, um, the land that you dread, the Assyrians, will, uh, the, uh, excuse me, the land you dread, which would be the northern kingdom and, and Syria, will be forsaken by both her kings by the time this little boy knows the difference between good and evil. By the time he grows up to know the difference between good and evil, you're not going to need to worry about uh, uh, the northern kingdom and Syria again. Verse 17, the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you, singular, and your people, singular, and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So you have a prophecy in verses... Um, in verse 13, 14, and 15, that's built on a plural pronoun that talks about a far distant sign that's fulfilled in the Messiah. Then in 16 and 17, you have a, the near fulfillment referring to a different child, the child of, of, uh, of Isaiah. And then the rest of that chapter... And chapter 8 talks about the characteristics of Assyria's invasion. And I know I'm going over, but give me about three minutes and we'll tie this together. You get a description of events in chapter 8. Isaiah is going to have another son who's going to call him Mehershalal Hashbaz. You always wonder where that name was, didn't you? Which means swift is the beauty, booty, Speedy is the prey, and it is a sign that the Assyrian invasion will come with lightning speed. And so that's the, the name he is to name that son. And then there's a description as to what will happen under uh, in that time of invasion. And in verse 8, there's a connection made that Assyria will go over all, at the end of verse 7. Look at it. The king of Assyria in all his glory, he will go up over all his channels and go up over all his banks you're almost going to get drowned, but not quite. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land. Who's he talking to there? Oh, Emmanuel. Who's Emmanuel? Emmanuel is the child, the divine human child born of a virgin in Isaiah 7.14. It's, he's identified now in chapter 8 as the one who truly owns the land of Israel. And then when we get to chapter 9, which is where we were talking, where we got into this, he's identified as the, the child who's born, the son who is given, who will be the prince of peace. So the peace that is talked about there is the one who will bring Peace in a full sense to Israel, peace in terms of the end of war and all of these deprivations to the kingdom because he is the one who will come and establish his kingdom. 
but that sense of that he is the prince of peace is tied to his bringing the kingdom. Now we'll stop there because that sets us up. I'll review some of this again next time. You need to hear it several times to get it together. But that's if you don't understand that, you can't understand what the angel, why the angels say what they say to the shepherds in Luke 2. So we'll come back and look at that next Thursday night in preparation for Christmas. Father, we thank you for this study of your word, for the fact that we have peace with you because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and because we trust in you, we're declared righteous, and because of that we have peace with you. We are no longer at enmity with you, and we know that even when we were at enmity with you, you loved us in such a way that you sent your Son. The Son prophesied for over thousands of years to come and to pay the penalty for sin so that we could have peace with you, and then he would come to establish his kingdom. Now, Father, as we go through this time of the year where we focus on the birth of our Savior. May we not get so caught up in the cultural trappings of Christmas that we forget the real reason and to focus on the fact that the Prince of Peace who came to offer a kingdom once will come again to establish his kingdom and that we as believers need to be prepared to rule and reign with him at that future time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.